here in my hand. Know what this is? It's an aerogram, which sounds very technical, technological, doesn't it? An aerogram. Uh, but here it is. This uh, it's. Uh, it's from my grandmother. It's uh, dated 31 July 1996. Uh, that was the year I was married. And it's addressed to Adam and Tanya. Uh, very convenient uh, way of uh, communicating. This is obviously before, um, well maybe not, who knows, email and technology and the internet and all that kind of stuff. Uh, no stamp is needed. You just write, seal and fold, don't you? Uh, but the thing with an aerogram is you start big and then when you get to the, this page, it gets very small or smaller and crammed and you start to run out of space as you say all those things that you wanted to say. Just one more thing, one more thing, one more thing because, you know, it's going overseas and it's either that or a phone call. And sometimes it gets random. A uh, few more things before I sign off while I remember. And sometimes when we read the Apostle Paul's letters... The end of his letters can feel a little bit like that. And maybe you think that's true for the end of 1 Thessalonians. Nick and I have looked at it and gone, oh my goodness, there's so much there. And that is absolutely true. It has this sense that it's like a scattergun approach. And Paul is firing off these random instructions before he signs off. One minute he's talking about leaders. Next minute he's talking about prophecy then he's talking about Christ's return, and then he's even talking about a holy kiss. Did you hear that as Barry read it out for you? Uh, this actually, the holy kiss bit came up at Bible study. Uh, Kel Butler said, Adam, what's a holy kiss? And someone else replied, well, pucker up, mate, and I'll show you. <laughs> uh, it was pretty funny. Needless to say, Kel's face made it obvious that he was absolutely not up for it. <laughs> Okay, this letter has had much to say about how the return of Jesus should shape Christian living today and into the future. And that big idea of the book, that Christ is coming and we live in light of that, is still found here in this last section. I'm going to say to you, I think this is anything but random. See, how we live as Christians as we wait for Christ's return. And maybe that's a question we still have from last week. We talked about a lot about belonging to the day and not the night and not the darkness. And so our question might be, how are we to live as people of the day? And maybe verse 19 is key for us. Did you see verse 19? Have a look for it. Make sure you find it. Five words. Do not quench the Spirit. If someone was to ask you, uh, hey, what does it mean to quench the Holy Spirit? What would your answer be, I wonder? It seems it is possible to live in such a way that quenches the Holy Spirit. So this is a warning. To quench means to extinguish, doesn't it? It's to deliberately put something out. And so to quench your thirst means to end your thirst, doesn't it? In the Bible, the spirit is often likened to a fire or a flame. And so I think the idea here is, do not extinguish the flame of the Holy Spirit. 
in your life and in your church family. Don't quench the fire that burns so brightly. Don't put it out. Now, some people will read this verse and then they'll get nervous, very nervous and even insecure. I mean, they're fearful that by some random mistake or lapse, the flame will go out. I wonder if that's a real fear. Do we read verse 19 and start to worry that we might do something to put the flame out? Uh, Is the Holy Spirit like a flickering, unstable, vulnerable little candle? Or is it more like an oxytorch? Or a bonfire? Uh, The Holy Spirit is a flame that is powerful and effective. The Holy Spirit is not easily set aside. And the Holy Spirit is absolutely, certainly not accidentally quenched. Like, whoops, I put the fire out. I mean, can you unintentionally and accidentally put out a bonfire if it's burning? That'd be something, wouldn't it? I mean, oops, I didn't mean to call Elvis the heli tanker and it's 95,000 litres of water and have it fly in and drop its load on my bonfire. I mean, that'd be just silly, wouldn't it? Now, you can't do that. Quenching the spirit is never unintentional or an accident. So here Paul is warning individuals in the church against choosing a direction that deliberately works against the spirit. And remember, the spirit is not to be remembered as simply a power that one can turn on or off. The spirit is a person. It's the third member of the Trinity, remember. And so to quench the spirit is to oppose the Holy Spirit and his work. And that's a serious warning because it seems it's possible to set oneself against God and to resist him and his work. And in light of Christ's return, that's a massive deal. And so because this is important, Paul offers us three ways in which the Spirit is active and therefore three ways in which we can avoid quenching the Spirit, I think. There might be a few more, but we'll have a look. The first one is found in verse 19 again. Let's read from verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And this is where the preacher goes, oh, fun. Prophecy, what's that? Now, when Paul talks about prophecy in the early church, he's not talking about the thus says the Lord that Moses would have said or Isaiah would have said from the Old Testament. Prophecy here has changed. How do we know it's changed? Because verse 21 says, test them all. They're to be tested. So just because someone comes up to you and says, hey, thus says the Lord, da-da-da-da, that doesn't mean that we accept it unthinkingly as a word from God. Don't do that. But Paul is also saying, and this is a bit that gets me, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater either. It's interesting. Look at verse 27 as we think about this issue of prophecy. Uh, Notice verse 27. Paul says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. This letter, of course, is 1 Thessalonians. And so as we read that, 
we remember that the New Testament isn't yet fully formed. And maybe prophecy, maybe, played a more prominent role prior to the formation and adoption of the New Testament books. Maybe. Maybe that's why prophecy isn't as prominent today. Because we have the authoritative scriptures. And so that, that would trump any kind of prophecy, I would have thought, especially if prophecy is to be tested. As an apostle, Paul commands them to read his letter to everyone and the practice of reading 1 Thessalonians continues today, doesn't it? Here it is, opening your laps, and that's a good thing. Now, some people think prophecy is preaching. Am I prophesying right now? Uh, that might help us connect verses 12 and 13. Uh, verse 12, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. The Spirit speaks. So maybe Paul is saying, value those who care for you in the Lord, those who have a ministry amongst you, lay or otherwise. I think Paul has leaders in view. Notice they don't have titles yet, no names. Highest regard can just mean respect and appreciation. I'm just glad if people treat me as their brother, truth be told. But notice it doesn't say we should despise those who lead us. It doesn't say ignore them. And it doesn't say that listening is optional. Because if they're not listening to Paul's letter being read out by their leader, I actually think that would be quenching the spirit. Wouldn't it? And nor does it say one should flatter and fawn over their leaders like they're popes or princes. Ego stroking, puffing a pastor's pride is the devil's work. That too is quenching the spirit. The encouragement here in these verses is respect and appreciation for ministry leaders because of their hard work their care, their discipline and love in the Lord, which may involve, probably does involve, preaching. Nevertheless, it's probably too simple to reduce prophecy to just preaching. 1 Corinthians 14 says prophecy is intelligible, and some preaching isn't. Uh, it's spontaneous, and though spirit-inspired, it is to be weighed and tested. They're words spoken that involve instruction and encouragement. Uh, maybe prophecy, so here's what I think maybe it is. Maybe prophecy is someone speaking out loud words that God himself has brought to mind that serve to encourage and build up his people. That's where I'm at, I think. It's those words that challenge and encourage in such a way as to bring change and transformation. Words that connect the gospel with a person's life. And you might hear it in church, that's true. And you might get a grab of it in a sermon, that's also true. Or Bible study, where a word the Spirit uses to bring another person into God's kingdom or a word that encourages growth and conviction in the hearers. Okay, so how do we test a prophecy? Well, every now and again we hear a story, don't we, about the Reserve Bank issuing a new, a new banknote. The most recent was the... We're, yeah, we ten ten dollar note. That's right. It's out. It's new, and uh, 
And they all talk up the security measures, don't they? It's got this, it's got that, it's got this kind of ink, it's this kind of material, and blah, blah, blah. And it's also the banks and the shops can check against uh, those security measures to make sure it's the real deal. And so it is with us. Uh, we are to test prophecy. We are to check prophecy. And we're to do that against uh, security measures. And so we're to ask questions like, well, is what they're saying true? Is it true? Uh, and then the most important question, I think, apart from that one, which is also very important, uh, equally important then, is that we ask, is this consistent with what God says in his word? Or does it contradict scripture? So when a bloke comes up to me and says, you know, Adam, I stood in my backyard and God spoke to me and he told me to leave my wife and my children. Hmm, what do you reckon? I don't think that's true at all. I think he's using something like this as self-justification. See, does it reflect the gospel? Is what they're saying going to reflect the gospel? Does it glorify Christ Jesus? Does it build up his church? They're good questions to ask of even preaching. Now, pause for a moment. Take a breath because we're on to the next thing. Because another work of the Spirit is holiness. We are to value holiness. Look at verse 23 with me, please. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body, that's every part of you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. The church family here was looking forward to Christ's return. Christ's return is where we are all heading and it's where the whole of history is heading. And as we wait in the time between, God is busy and active by his spirit. And what is he doing? Verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. That word sanctified can also be understood as, if I said holified, would that make sense to you? He's making us holy. In chapter 4, uh, chapter four, Paul urged the Thessalonians to live a holy life. And one of the reasons we're to be holified is because God has taken up residence in our lives. The Holy Spirit lives in us, such that we are now to desire and pursue holy living. The work of the Holy Spirit is to be God's agent of change in our lives. His work in us is to make us more like Christ. Christ's likeness is what holiness looks like, true holiness. Christ-like is what people who belong to the day look like. Now, of course, the danger for Christians is that sometimes we can think of the Spirit as only active in the most visible and most spectacular ways. I hope you don't think that. Some uh, Christians have this uh, desire for something more. They just want more. And then unless their experience regularly uh, shows something of the supernatural, uh, they think they're missing out. And the trouble with that is such a desire can come at the cost of recognising the normative internal working of the Spirit in our lives, where he's producing holiness of all things. To limit the Spirit 
to the outwardly extraordinary, well, maybe that's one way the Spirit is in fact quenched, such that the normative work of the Spirit, where he's working to make you holy, is ignored. We need to see that the work of the Spirit is to bring change. His goal is to point you to Jesus and to make you more like him, that you would grow in Christ. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Our mission, our vision is to grow in Christ. And we cannot do that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that such work, of course, is not a sprint. Those in ministry need to be reminded it's not a sprint. It's not quick. It's not like going through the Macca's drive-through where everything appears almost in an instant. Not at all. It's a marathon. It's gradual. It's slow. It's purposeful. It's absolutely not a sprint. We have within us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's concern and priority is to change me and its concern is to change you as well. And the implication, of course, is that we all need to change and to grow. It's like a tree. That which is not growing is dead. Martin Luther said, For God is not gracious and merciful to sinners to the end that they should remain as they were before they received grace and mercy, but he condones and forgives for the sake of Christ, who has fulfilled the whole law in order thereby to make the heart sweet and through the Holy Spirit to kindle and move the heart to begin to love from day to day more and more. That's Martin Luther in the days of the medieval. There is a spirit's work. It kindles and it moves our heart to love, to love God and to love one another day by day. And so we are to value the day-to-day -day work of the Spirit, where it happens, and where does it happen? In our hearts. In our hearts. Now, how does it show itself? Well, look at verse 14. It tells you uh, there's an encouragement there to be patient with everyone at the end of the verse. Do you know patience is a Spirit-filled quality? I'm sure you'll take great delight in telling your loved one that when they're knocking on the door, telling you to hurry up. Uh, verse 15 uh, tells us not to go for payback. We read that in Proverbs, didn't we? Don't go for payback. Always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. It's a great lesson in leadership as well. Putting people above and before you is a spirit-filled quality. Do you recognise patience as the work of the Spirit in your lives? See, think about it. The same Spirit that rose Jesus, the same Spirit that descended on the apostles at Pentecost. Do we have that same Spirit? Do we ask that same Spirit, rather, to descend on us and to make us patient? You can. And you should. I should. Here it is. One of the things the Spirit wants to do in each and every believer. Do we see dramatic and outward spectacles here? Change lives? Transform lives? Lives growing in Christ? Yes. 
Absolutely. How might we know the Spirit is alive and active within me? Well, it's when we're willing to be patient and sacrificial and humble and willing to count the cost. But not just for anything, for the sake of the gospel. Because that's what Jesus did. It's practical holiness that we must value and pursue because this is what God wants to work in us. The Spirit is at work, so we value holiness. Here's the third thing. Rejoicing, praying and thankfulness all involve the work of the Spirit. Do you see them there at verse 16? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, do those things sound miraculous? Well, if you appreciate the sinfulness of the human heart, then you'd have to say, yes, of course it's miraculous. This is miraculous. To be filled with joy and thanksgiving, whatever the circumstances. I mean, how on earth could that come from us on our own? This is the work of God by his spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that makes this true in my life and in yours. And this is what happened to the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, Paul noted one of the effects of the conversion was that they welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 5. See, how does one give thanks to God in the midst of severe suffering? Well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if that's a thing for you, if you struggle with that, maybe that's a personal prayer point for you. Father God, enable me by your Holy Spirit to give thanks to you, to delight in you. Fill me with more and more joy, please, by your Holy Spirit. Imagine if we prayed that prayer more. Paul tells us, to pray continually as well. Again, continual prayer. How does that happen apart from the Spirit's help? Continual prayer. Do we have a constant disposition of prayer in our day as we go about our work with an awareness that we are connected to God, that he's present? Do we set aside a time each day for prayer? Uh, Jesus did it. He was at it morning and night. And if he needed to, and if he did it, if this was his pattern of prayer, well, how much more you and I? And again, it can only happen with the Spirit's enabling. Without the Spirit's help, we will pray hardly ever. Barely at all. But if we are open to the Spirit's help, then the Spirit will remind us of our need to pray. We have a Heavenly Father who wants to hear us, who wants to hear His children pray. Prayer is a gift from God. It helps us to navigate life between Christ's first coming and His final comprehensive return. Our world is broken and it is busted, and I know that many of us despair. But God has given us the gift of prayer, to help us navigate all of that. And as we wait, we are right to pray for peace, to pray for justice, to pray for compassion, 
to pray for evil to be restrained, to pray for good, godly decisions to be made at the level of government. We are to pray for the Spirit also to be at work and we're to pray that Jesus would come again. Our number one core value, this church family, our number one core value is what? Biblical teaching. Our second core value, our second core value is prayer. We are a church family that say we're committed to prayerfulness. And as we do gather, as we do pray, we should be able to see and hear the Holy Spirit at work in one another's lives as people pray. You can know those who are mature among us by their willingness to pray and by what they pray. And the Spirit wants us and draws us to pray to our Heavenly Father who loves to hear his children come to him. Look at verse 18. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for you in your life? He wants you to be his child. A child that comes to his loving Heavenly Father. A child that talks to him of all things. And prays. There's no guesswork here. No guesswork. God's will for you is to come to him in prayer. And so how do we live as people who belong to the day? We must not quench the Spirit by neglecting or ignoring prayer. We must not quench the Spirit by neglecting holiness. And we must not quench the Spirit by neglecting the witness of God's work and word in our life. For we belong to the day. Let me close by reading to you verse 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, may he sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body, every part of you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he is coming. Verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen.